We're going to discuss today failures and how failures are part if the question I posted earlier this morning, I posted on Facebook as well, are failures part of God's master plan? Are failures part of God's master plan? Hello, Henny, how are you? Yes. So Yosef says yes. What do you say, Marsha? What do you say? I think yes. You say yes too, Steve? You agree? I can't yes. see you. Yes, Roseanne? Okay. So if you think about it, in the whole world, everything, Vivi says no. Vivi says no. Good. We need someone to say no. We create our own failures. So Vivi says we create our own failures. And now Marsha agrees with Vivi. So you agree with everyone. So you say we create our own failures, and they're not God's fault, so to say, not part of God's master plan. They're our own, our own creations. Exactly. I disagree with that statement. You disagree with that statement. No, I think you have to fail to get to somewhere else. Exactly, you get the You have to fail to get to somewhere else, so is it part of God's master plan to fail? If you're watching us, if you're watching on Facebook, tell me what you think. Esther says yes, but I don't know yes to what, Esther. Yes. It's part of God's master plan, or yes, yes, it's part of God's master plan, I guess. Or do you think that it's um, it's our own fault and our own creation, and our mess ups and our sins and our failures are the result of our own actions? Okay. If you think about it, then all of the creations that God has in the universe, right? You have animals, you have plants, you have computers, you have angels, you have humans officially, ostensibly, what's the greatest of all of God's creations? The human being. Mm -hmm. And yet, which is the most likely to mess up and to fail? In fact, the only creation that can, so to say, fail is humans. Computers, I mean, they could be ransom, they could be, uh, they could be hijacked, and they could be, uh, you know, cyberware on them. But the crown jewel of God's existence which is the human being, seemingly is the object that's most vulnerable to, uh, to failure. So, as Esther's saying, if that's part of the master plan, how does that fit? It would seem that our failures are a contradiction to God's master plan. God wants us to be His choice creature, right? That's what God wants. So how does our... It would seem like God created a world with potentially perfect human beings that actually mess up and kind of ruin God's master plan. Yes? So you know, for me, at some, at some point, it seems like a failure at that moment. It's also a blessing in describe it as well. So Yosef is saying that even though it may seem that when we mess up, we're ruining God's master plan, it's, only a, it's really a blessing in disguise. And really, later on, you'll see how that failure actually led to a greater outcome. You see that through business as well. You see that in business. Okay, very good. Vivi doesn't agree, and that's why we're going to have a class, we're going to discuss it. Marsha's like all over tonight. She's like, <laughs> you change back. <laughs> you change back. Okay, so let's discuss this in light of this week's Torah reading. What we're going to discuss, this discussion of failure, and how we're meant to understand it in the big picture of creation and God's master plan, we're going to discuss it in the context of the opening verse of the second Torah reading of this week. This week is a double parsha, a double portion. Matos and Maseh. Very interesting parsha. Very interesting. So we're going to go right to the second one today. The second parsha begins, Eile Maseh B'nei Yisrael. These are the journeys of the Jewish people. 
Asher Yotzu, Me'eretz, Mitzrayim, they left the land of Egypt by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And Moshe wrote, Vayichtav Moshe, Moshe wrote all of their journeys, all the Motzeyem, their starting points, the Maseyem to their journeys, Alpi Hashem on the word of God. These are their journeys according to their exit points. These are their destinations and their journeys. And then, the next very long number of verses actually mentions and describes each one of the 42 journeys of the Jewish people from the land of Israel, from the land of Egypt, sorry, all the way till the promised land of Israel. So the, the, verse, the next verse, verse 3, they traveled from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th of the month, and they came, uh, they left the day after Egypt, uh, after Mitzrayim, and they came to Sukkot. And then they to Ramses. And then they came they left from Ramses and they came to Sukkot. They left Sukkot and they came to Asam on the, the, the border of the desert. And that's where they had the miracle of the splitting of the sea. And then they continued, etc. etc. I'm not going to go through all 42 journeys right now. And the Torah, or rather Moshe, based on the word of God, God tells them to say this. As they're about to enter the land of Israel, they're at the end of the 40-year journey. Moshe repeats to the Jewish people each and every one of the 42 journeys where they left from and where they went to. And the next verse, where they left from, where they had arrived earlier, whatever it is, each stop of the journey. Now they left from destination number 32 and arrived at number 33. But by name and mentioning some of the different moments that happened to the Jewish people while they were there. Okay, Shalom Randy. Randy says hello to everyone that's in the room. Everyone says hi to you. Okay, so the obvious question is why is it important to list each and every one of these 42 journeys? They're all already mentioned earlier in the Torah. This entire chapter, the entire chapter uh, 33 is basically just review. There's no new information in the entire chapter. It's nothing more than a recap. We were here, and that's where we had the splitting of the sea, and then we were here, and that's where you complained, you had no water, that's where we hit the rock, that's where the mud fell down, that's where you had sent the spies, that's where you got afraid when Aaron died and you retreated, etc., etc., reminding us of some of the things we don't want to be reminded of. So the whole chapter is a review. So what's the point? Why do we spend every verse in the Torah is precise, every verse in the Torah is meant to teach us something, to be a lesson, to give us values. And yet, here we have many, many verses that seemingly are doing nothing more than reviewing that which we've already, already learned. Good evening, Yonatan. Uh, true point that the number 42 is a special number in Judaism. Uh, the 42 letters on the Mekoch, it's really 49. But 42 is also, uh, yes. There is significance to the fact that there were 42 journeys from Egypt to the Promised Land, but that's not going to be the subject of tonight's class. So the question is, why do we need to review each and every journey, what happened at each destination? So Rashi gives us an analogy to explain why we need to have a review of all the journeys. Rashi tells us an analogy of a king whose son was very sick. So he took his son, who was very ill, to a very well-known specialist, a famous doctor. And they traveled, and the whole journey, and thankfully the doctor healed the boy. 
And on the way back, when the boy, when they were traveling back home from the specialist, from the doctor, on the journey, the king shows the son, here is where you were sick, here's where your head was hurting, had a headache, here's where you were sleeping, here's where you were cold and had fever, etc. He's reminding him of the different things that happened. The boy didn't remember, he was sick on the journey. He's reminding him of what happened, he's reminding him of the journey. So too, now that the Jews are at the end of the 40-year journey, we're, so to say, maturing, and we're growing up and going to the land of Israel. So God is reminding us, here's where you complained, here's where you got afraid because you had no water, here's where you rebelled with the golden calf, you know, reminding us of the story. That's the reason, or the analogy Rashi gives to explain why we need to review the 42 journeys of the Jewish people in the desert. However, does this really answer the question? No. We still, we still haven't explained why we need to review. Just because you're telling me a story that a king to, was traveling with his son, so on the way back he told him, oh, here's where you threw up, and here's where you had fever. And by the way, the analogy is not even similar. Because in the analogy, when is the father showing his son the different things that happened as they're returning back home? So when they came, oh, by the way, in this place, that's where you uh, had fever. But, but here the Jews are not actually traveling, traveling back to the destinations. They're at the border of the land of Israel. It's purely a, a mental review. It's not like, it makes much more sense. As I'm traveling back through a place, I say, oh, by the way, here, this is where this happened. You know, that's, where, that's where you had fever, that's where you threw up. But seemingly the Jews are not, the, the analogy doesn't fit to, to the story of God and the Jewish people. But besides that, the more important question hasn't been answered. Why would we bring up and remind God, or remind ourselves rather, of these negative incidents that happened during the time of our journey in the desert? Well, we've grown already. The Jews have grown through the 40 years in the desert. Now we're a new nation, ready to conquer the land of Israel. And what are we doing before we go in? We're remembering all the negative things that happened in the past. How is that, how is that meaningful? How, instead, instead of being thankful, instead of being optimistic, instead of being focused on the future, instead, what are we doing? We're reminiscing of the past, and when we left this place, that's where we lost faith, and here's where the miracle of the of this plea happened, here's where we complained about the water, etc. So we don't like to take responsibility then. We always want to blame it on somebody else. Yeah, here we're, no, here we're not... Well, here we're not blaming someone, we're just, we're reviewing it. Well, the question is, it's a very simple question, a very simple but very important question. What is the value of like almost 50-something verses of reviewing all of these past 42 journeys that already happened? And most of them were negative stories. Most of them were bad things that happened. The Jews, you know, were in our maturity, we were in our young years. So what's the point? Well... So you reach the answer. You can say where we started from. You can say, you're saying a good point, to be grateful that we were once slaves in Egypt and now we're coming to the Promised Land. So you can say that in one verse, in two verses. You know what I'm saying? You don't need each one of the 42 stops in the middle to experience that feeling of gratefulness that you were 40 years ago, you were slaves in Egypt, and now you're about to enter your own Promised Land. Robert, and then I'll take it was down, yeah? So that we don't repeat the past mistakes, because we have a tendency to good. A good answer. If you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat the same mistakes. That's good, yeah. Let me go to Rizan, Same thing. What the past didn't 
Okay. You both sing a very good thought. So we'll, yeah. Okay, so Marsha's saying that the people that are rem- are being reminded of these stories weren't there. First of all, they were many of them were that they were just not 20 years old when they weren't at the beginning, but they were there for the later journeys. But they knew the stories. I mean, they all had fathers and grandfathers that before they passed away that told them the stories. I don't think the Jews didn't know about the the, the, the complaining about the meat or the or the bread. <laughs> so Yonatan saying online that Moses knows Jews are stubborn, true, and he has to repeat it and emphasize it, which is basically what Roseanne, in different words, but the same thing that Robert and Roseanne are saying, we have to re- be reminded from history. Okay, it's a good answer, but it's not what we're going to say tonight. We said something far more powerful and far more, it's not just about remembering the past, far more powerful than that. Okay, what's the point of the 42 journeys? So the Torah in Hasidus, it explains that the whole purpose of the 42 journeys was a journey towards the Promised Land and more specifically to the city of Jericho, Yericho. Yericho was the first city the Jews conquered in the entered land of Israel, right? Famous story of the Rachav, whatever. The first city the Jews conquered in the land of Israel was Jericho. People don't learn from history. That's what we were talking about here in the class as well. Um... So you know, let's stay tuned for the rest of the class and see if you, uh, we'll talk about it. He's, yeah. Okay, so we come to the land of Israel. We left Egypt, but we didn't just go straight from Egypt to Jericho, which Jericho, Yericho, is the idea of reach. Reach, the word Yericho is reach, is the smell of fragrance. A reference to Mashiach. Mashiach is going to judge by his smell. It says Mashiach will be able to smell which the smell of the five senses of a human being is the most, fi- most uh, um, pure, uncorrupted s- sense of a human being. You can't use it for sin. All of our other senses can be used in holy ways and unholy ways. Smell, fragrance, the, the ability to smell, there's no sin associated with smell. It's a pure, inherent part of the soul, which is why smell is a, a, arousal, puts a faint. You put the smelling salts, Imagine if you smell something really gross. It can make you literally sick. Mm-hmm. You can smell something like rotten. It can make you throw up. Mm-hmm. If you touch something rotten, you're not going to throw up. It's the smell that will make you nauseous. Right. So why did COVID make you lose the smell? That's a good question. I don't know. The Took the smell. I don't know. It's not the only thing, but <laughs> it's a lot more than just lose your smell. But okay. Um, the point is, in order to go from Mitzrayim, to go to the Promised Land, to go to Mashiach, to go to the completion of, of the story of the Jewish people, we had to go into the desert, the Midbar Ha'amim, the, the multitude of the nations. Not only a physical desert, but a spiritual wasteland, a place where nothing grows, a place where you don't see vegetation, you don't see life, you don't see God. So when we describe a place where God is not there, in a revealed sense, obviously, God is everywhere. But when you want to describe a place devoid of holiness, devoid of growth, you have a city, you have even a field which is not a city, it's not a place of inhabitation, but you see life. You have a desert, represents death, represents nothing is growing there, there's no godliness there, there's no life there, etc. In order for the Jewish people, collectively, now we're talking on the, 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 on the big picture 
that all of us can learn from these journeys that are described in the Torah of the Jewish people is to understand that these 42 journeys, each and every single specific journey that is being mentioned, with its beginning and its end, is because each one of us have to go through in the desert, so to say, in our own exile, in our own concealment and hiddenness from godliness, in our own spiritual wasteland where seemingly nothing is growing and seemingly, as Yonatan is saying, that the people are full of errors and people are failures and we're not fulfilling what God wants us to be. In that environment, we have to struggle our way through, step after step, moment after moment. And we all have that. Any one of you think about it in your life, you can identify different phases in your life. Right? Every one of us. When we first were little kids... And then we have when we went to overnight camp, phase when we went to middle school, high school, uh, we were in a phase of our life when we were in a soccer team or whatever, right? In the band, time in college, a time when we were dating this person, phase in our life when we were dating that person, time in our life when we worked in this company, when we were uh, you know, living here, when we were living there, right? Any one of us, if you lived a life, your life has different phases, different journeys. Times when you lived in this place, Time when you worked here, time when you were in this school, time when you were associated with this group of people, time when you were in, you know, every one of us has that. That's part of going through the journey of life. And in each step of that journey, each beginning and end, not just the first beginning and last end, but each individual place that we went from has a beginning and end, has a leaving Egypt, it has a destination to bring the world closer to the time of Yericha, to the time when the fragrance of godliness is apparent and f- felt in a physical way, that Mashiach is a reality in our lives. It's a journey. But each phase of the journey is mentioned, because each phase in the desert, each phase in the spiritual wasteland, is a journey in our lives. Okay? Now, that makes that's beautiful, that makes perfect sense. But... If you think about the different phases of your life, right? So we all can identify phases. When we were childhood, uh, school, college, dating someone, working in a certain company. Some of those phases of our life were great times. They were great experiences. We learned a lot. We grew from it. We gained from it. And then we all probably can identify times in our life that seemingly now we look back at them and say they were failures. These were wasted points of my life. Or even worse, they were negative errors and negative phases of my life. These were times in my life that were, that were, they were, they were downfalls. They were moments of failure. They were moments that if I could do it again, I would have done it differently. I never would have worked in that place. I never would have married that person. I never would have uh, moved to that, you know, whatever it is. And in hindsight... Some of the phases of our life were great, like the miracles of splitting of the sea, and some of like the golden calf, you know what I'm saying, and then there's all in between. But, and each one of us in our lives, I'm sure if we were to spend a few minutes thinking about it, would identify phases that seemingly were failures. But these are journeys for one of us supposed to go through this. That's what it's supposed to go through it, but we didn't say anything. Here. Just, uh, yeah. So why do we have failures in our life? Why do we have moments and periods and times of our life that were negative experiences that, in hindsight, we wish we didn't do? So as Yosef already said, and this is a very basic idea in Judaism, there's a concept called Yerida 
the Tzorach Aliyah. Yerida the Tzorach Aliyah means a descent for the purpose of an ascent. So, it's a very basic idea. If you want to shoot a rubber band, and I want to hit the Steve in the face of the rubber band, you know, I'm a troublemaker in class. So you can't just throw the rubber band. You've got to pull it back, and then it can, it can shoot forward, right? right? He also knows what I'm talking about. He's done that in class. It's anything. Whether you're jumping on a trampoline, if you're pulling an arrow, if you want to, if I heard a story that there was once a yeshiva student who was in Yechidis, was in a private audience with the Rebbe. He was in a meeting with the Rebbe. And he was lamenting to the Rebbe that he's in this very, very dark place in his life. He feels like he's in a big hole. And like he's like stuck in this hole and it's like, it's like such a negative... What he's dealing with now, whatever spiritual struggles he was dealing with, it feels like a very, very big hole for him. So the Rebbe told him, Yerida l'Torah Haliyah. This answer, it's a descent. You're in a down place. But you, you can have a tremendous ascent from the struggle you're dealing with. But you know, that's a theoretical, abstract answer. And this yeshiva student was struggling with real issues. So I don't know exactly what he said to the Rebbe, but he wasn't satisfied with the answer. You know, he was like, I don't know if he said something, or if the Rebbe was able to see, the Rebbe read minds, and never saw that telling this yeshiva student, the fact that you're struggling and you feel like you're in this really, really bad place, is a descent for the sake of ascent, is not going to help him. So the Rebbe stood up, the Rebbe walked around his desk, there was a chair, he took a chair. In general, yeshiva students didn't sit when they came into a meeting with the Rebbe. Now there was a chair in the office, some people sat, but a chasa would never sit in the meeting with the Rebbe. The Rebbe was sitting and they were standing. The Rebbe took a chair, it was in like the corner, like in the side of the room, and put it right in front of the student. And the Rebbe told the student, could you jump over this chair? Wow. Standing right there. So he says, I can't just jump over it. So the Rebbe says, if you were to walk back to the end of the room, you take a few steps back, and could you jump over the chair? They've actually brought the chair next to him, because even just to say to him wouldn't have had enough of an effect. It had to be like a tangible, he had to visually, viscerally, he had to see the chair in front of his legs and realize, I can't just jump right now, just jump over the chair. <laughs> he can't do that. So if you walk back, could you jump over the chair? So right now you have to walk, you're, you're in a state of descent. You have to recognize that this descent is so that you should now shoot yourself forward to jump over the chair. Okay? So this is, this is a very basic idea, that when we find ourselves in a negative environment or in a negative experience, we're meant to learn from it, we're meant to grow from it, as Yosef said before, in a way that we would not have grown if life had been good. So if we had not wasted this, this time in this career, in this job, in this company, or whatever, or with this uh, dating this person, or marrying this person, or, or spending, investing money, whatever it is, we never would have learned from the experience. We never would have had the wisdom and the brilliance and the, the, the sensitivity, whatever it is we gained from that experience. We become better people from that negative time in our lives. Right? Makes sense. But this is basic. What I've said so far is basic. So we all have phases in our life, journeys in our life, that are similar to the times when the Jewish people were at a down when the Jewish people sinned, when the Jewish people complained, that they seem like negative moments, they seem like negative times, but yet, in hindsight, not at the moment, but in hindsight, when you look back, you recognize, Yerida, 
for the sake of an aliyah. A descent, it was a negative experience, but that made me a wiser person. That made me a more sensitive person. That made me a more considerate person. I've grown. I'm a better person. I'm a, I am who I am today because of that moment, that phase of my life that was a negative phase, a dark phase of my life. But, but, we only experience that much later. <laughs> now, when you're sitting in class and you're thinking back about the time 20 years ago when you wasted uh, 10 years of your life in a dead-end job or in a living wherever you lived or trying to help someone that just took advantage of you and abused you or whatever it is, and now you're looking back at that time, so now you can look back and say how I gained from it. But at the time when you're in that phase of your life, when you're still struggling with that, you don't see any beautiful, happy ending. When you're in the phase, when you're in the struggle, when you're in that moment, when you're still in that part of your life, that part of your life is dark. It's bad. It's negative. It's negative. Just like there were journeys of the Jewish people in the desert that were negative journeys. They were bad times when we sinned horrifically. So there are times in your life that are bad. And when we experience those moments in our life that we look back at that were bad, then we didn't see how they were good. And right after we realized how we were struggling, we didn't see the good. We were like, this is terrible. I wish I didn't do this. I regret it. I, and we beat ourselves up for it. Hindsight is twenty twenty. So now we're looking back. Years later, we have the ability to look back and say, wow, that's, I, what, I, what did I gain from that dark time of my life? This is why it's important to take time to pause and to revisit those moments years later. Because at the time of the negativity, during the time of the struggle, you, you don't see any good. You know why? Because at that time, it's not good. A descent for the sake of an ascent is actually really a descent. <laughs> it's not an ascent. It's a descent. Right now I'm stuck in the darkness. Right now I'm stuck in a negative situation. Right now I'm in a, I'm in a dark place in my life. Later there's a, 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 a return on the investment. Later there's a value that I can see from it. But I won't see that now. Now it's bad. So later on, it's very important to take pause after the fact, when you're now in a safe place, when you're in a good place, when you're emotionally grown already, and you've already realized the value that you're able to take from that negative phase of your life, and to revisit it, and to go back down to the negative time from your safe space. Meaning, you have to go back. God is telling Moshe, remind the Jews of that time when they sinned and they complained and they lost faith. Because now they're, they're strong. Now they're ready to go to the land of Israel. So in a place of strength, when we're emotionally healed from that dark part of our lives, now we're able to, now we're able to, there's value. The way we grow from that experience is when we revisit the experience and look back at that time that was a, a wasted time or a negative time when we were taken advantage of, etc. And to see how we can grow and, and, and revisit what happened then. That makes sense so far? It's good, right? Yeah. Think about the analogy. It's only the first part of the class, by the way. But if you think back about the analogy of the king going back home. Remember we said the king was going back home? What's the point on the way back home? 
after the son was healed. You don't show your son, here's where you threw up when he's still sick. Imagine if your son is sick, God forbid, you travel to the doctor and he throws up. And then you're, and he doesn't get healed. Would you say, this is where you were sick when you're still sick? No. After the son got better. And now they're going back home because he's not sick anymore. Now you're able to give the gratitude by saying, here's where you had fever. Here's where you were sleeping and I had to carry you, etc. You understand? When you're healed from the negative phase of our lives, then we're able and we need to take time to find the value and the meaning and the benefit that we can gain from that negative experience. Because if we just block it out of our consciousness and we try to obliterate it from our memory and pretend like it never happened, then we're never going to get the real value that we can from that time of darkness. So we need to revisit it. We need to go back on this memory lane to all those journeys and all those, including all those negative spaces where we seemingly failed. And now, instead of business, now I can see how losing my job was the best thing that ever happened to me, right? You don't see it at the time that you're out of work and you're struggling, how am I going to pay my bills? But a year later, when you opened up your own company and that uh, because you were desperate and you wouldn't have done it, until you were desperate, you wouldn't have done it. You would have been complacent working, you know, getting your paycheck. Now I was forced, now I had no choice, I got fired. And then you open up and you become very successful. Then you can look back and say, there was a blessing. Okay? No, 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 don't fire him. Just, <laughs> you know, it's a very famous, that, that's one of the famous examples of people that, and there's many such stories of people that, you know, they were working in the company and they were happy. They were getting a paycheck, they were paying their bills, they had a roof over their head, and then they got fired. And all of a sudden they, they were desperate. And after that, they opened their own, they did something, they found a whole new opportunity or a whole new career path that they never would have even explored if they still had their job. So if they would have not been fired, 10 years later, they'd still be making the same, you know, whatever, $20 an hour. And now they have a whole new, now they open their own business, now they're on top of a big company, etc. Okay. Good evening, Gail. Good evening, Andrea. Everything I've said so far hopefully makes sense. Any questions? Any questions? Find the good, even what we would perceive as the bad. But so, Cal, so what we're saying is not that in the moment of the bad to try and pretend like it's good. You have to do that too, but that's not what we're discussing now. Now what we're discussing is that when you look back at those moments in your life previously that were indeed bad times, every one of us had moments that were negative. You can look back at those bad times and find how that bad time really was part of the growth in who you are today, becoming who you are today. Okay? Everything is beautiful. But there's one whole, one major problem in this whole thesis. No. What's the one, what's the one problem with this, with this explanation on why God wants us to review the 42 specific journeys and the negative journeys and the negative experience of the Jews in the desert for this purpose? There's one problem, which is, there's one issue. It makes sense. But what about lost opportunities due to bad people holding you up? Okay. Andrea's saying, what about when other people are the cause for your negative? So if someone else is stopping you from achieving what you need to be, that's partly God creating a situation. 
But what about when I on my own mess up? Meaning, I understand, I understand that when God engineers a situation that I should be in a certain environment, or in a certain circumstance, or God puts me with certain people, God, yeah, I took a certain job, and you know, God, God wanted me here so I could, uh, I could grow from this experience. But what about when you on your own deliberately sabotage your own life? Not what you try to do with the right thing that God put you in a certain circumstance. You made bad choices. Not a choice that you thought was a good choice and in hindsight was a bad choice. You made a bad choice. Sometimes we know. But I mean, if you want to do more extreme examples, a person got into an addiction, a person got into gambling, got into crime, he got into gambling, he got into, he, he did illegal things, he, he cheated on his spouse, he was a, you know, immoral. And they, they, people do this. There's a lot of examples. There's no shortage of examples of people making deliberately, knowing that they're bad choices. They, 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 they got involved with people that they knew they shouldn't get involved with. And they got involved in the criminal activity, God forbid, or in, you know, whatever. They got involved with a woman they shouldn't get involved with, and they uh, cheat on their spouse. Okay? So this is not like where God put you in a situation so you should grow from the situation. This is where I dug my own hole. I dug my own hole. So it's, it's can you argue that I was unfaithful in my marriage? No, I was not, God forbid. No, I was not unfaithful. So you're gonna say, fire. A person was unfaithful. You know what I'm saying? Can a person argue? I was unfaithful in my marriage. It was part of God's master plan. That's what we're saying in today's class. person can say, it's not my fault that I cheated on you. God had a master plan. I should become a better husband. And the way I become a better husband is through cheating on you and then going to therapy and learning how to like... Yeah? Does that make sense? Don't get distracted on the example of cheating. I can do the same example with crime and with addiction and people get into addictions. Yeah, so you're saying it's an excuse, meaning that, that you can't say dissent for the sake of an assent when it's you the one that did it. Because the person is still in charge of him or herself. There's still such thing as uh, free rule. You, that person did the actual action. Correct. That's exactly my question to you. That's exactly what I'm asking. Since the person had free will, it's not like God put you in a situation, you could choose which college to go to, you could choose what job to accept. So you chose one job, but... You chose what you thought would be the best, ended up being a very bad choice, and it was a terrible job in a very negative work environment and a very abusive boss, so you didn't know. But here, where you, where you knew that you were making a choice, you knew this guy was a criminal, and you still decided to go work for him, right? And now you got caught, and you're sitting in jail, God forbid, not you, okay? Not him, I'm saying, right? And, and you're sitting in jail, or now your record, you know, you knew he was honest, and he screwed you, and he stole your credit. So, okay, so... That's what you made. No, you had free choice, and you knowingly made a bad choice. Can you still say that that bad choice was part of God's master plan, meaning that five, ten years later, now you can look back at that time in your life when you decided to do business with this criminal, knowing that he was shady and he screwed you, or when you decided now when you, you know, cheated on your spouse and now you went to therapy and the marriage is better and stronger and more wholesome, say... And look back and say, that was a good part, really, of my life, too. That was part of God's master plan to make uh, our marriage strong. Cheating on you from the wife. 
It is the Yetzirah. Of course it's the Yetzirah. I'm asking though the question, can you say that when the Yetzirah convinced you to sin, that was part of God's master plan that you would sin? Or is the fact that you sin your own decision, your own choice, and don't mix God into your choices to sin? So you're saying that God wanted you to, okay, you're saying a good point, that God wanted you to learn a certain, become a certain person. You could, either it would have happened that God would have given you a more clean, holy way of learning it, and you chose a more unholy way of getting to the same destiny, meaning the destination would have been what God wanted, but the path was your choice. So then, so th- that's what you're saying? Yes. So then the path is your choice. When you look back at the journey, you can't say that this negative part of my journey was part of God's master plan because I chose to go this route, not that route. God's master plan was to get you to that spot and you got there. Right, so you got there dirty. You could have gone on the straight paved path. And instead you took a detour and you went through a lot of thorns and bushes and got scraped and bruised and cut up and you're bleeding. So you can't look back now and say all those scrapes and all those bruises were part of God's master plan because I was the one that chose to take this off the path route. That, that, that's what you're saying. Let's see online. Any comments online? It makes sense. What about lost opportunity? Okay. No, no, no. Interesting, huh? It's a heavy topic, yeah? I was thinking of the case uh, someone's in the courtroom and they did something bad and they can't say, oh, it was part of God's master plan that I stole the money from the Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. If anyone online watching has a comment, please share. Absolutely, you can't use God as your defense, you know what I'm saying? You can't, we're not blaming God again. And we're not talking about at the time. We're not talking about that a person cheats on their spouse and they come to their wife and say, don't blame me, everything is from God, right? Everything that happens in the world is part of God's master plan, so it's God's plan that I should cheat on that, that obviously doesn't make any sense. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. What we're discussing is in hindsight hindsight. When you look back after, the, where the, when the Jewish people are revisiting their, the, the negative journeys of the past 40 years, is at the end of the 40 year journey when they're about to enter the land of Israel. So what we're discussing now is not a person did a sin. I says, don't blame me, part of God's master plan. That's for sure not. That's for sure not. That's the Sahara. you made a wrong choice, you're going to be punished, you got to fix it up, you got to do tshuva, etc. What we're discussing is after the fact. So let's say a person engaged in criminal behavior, a person was in the addiction, and people that suffer from addiction and went through proper help and went through the 12 steps and etc. They're the most honest, dedicated, committed people. They're more committed to, 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 to their relationships than just regular people because they, they, they know what it means to destroy a relationship. They destroy uh, so they did. And now when they've learned from it, they've grown from it in a tremendous way. So the question is, I have a lot to say, so, so let's, the question is, is that negative choice part of God's master plan? Okay. It's a very theological question, it's a very broad question with a lot of implications. I see oh, one comment, in hindsight, one can say that yes, you're still thinking about it. Of course you have the right, God gave you free choice. Yeah. So what? God has done in it. I mean, it's your responsibility. 
That's my question. Is God is it part of God's master plan or is it your responsibility? That's exactly. You say it's your responsibility. That's fine. That's so. What does Chassidus tell us? The short answer in Chassidus is as Yonatan saying online is that yes, even the sins that a person chooses are part of God's master plan. When a person cheats on their spouse, God, I'm saying I have to use this example. When a person uh, steals money and does criminal behavior, a person uh, sins and you know, speaks bad about somebody else, and then later they grow up and they mature and say, why would I say something so mean to someone? You know, today you have like, people write tweets or whatever. They're, 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 they're young, they're 20 years old, and they write something stupid on Facebook. And then 10 years later, they have a career, and all of a sudden they find from when you were in, you know, in college, when you, were, you, you posted on Instagram some stupid thing. But... That choice that the person made then, that was all part of God's master plan. It's all part of God's master plan. And now you look back and say, why did I do that? Why did I do that? That's part of God's master plan. I'm going to give you a proof and I'm going to explain why. One very famous proof to this is there's a very famous verse in the very beginning of the Torah when God makes man. God says, let us Make man, right? That's what the Torah says. You're familiar with that verse? Yeah. God said, Nasa Adam, let us make man in our image, but Salmei knew in our image, Kibutainu in our form. In our form, in our image. So when Moshe Rabbeinu was writing down the Torah, and God told him, write down the words, let us make man in our image. So Moses says to God, God, that's a bad idea. You're, you're making it sound like there's multiple gods involved in creation. In fact, Trinity uses this verse as a, you have multiple gods. Right? Let me make man. Why are you saying let us make man? What does God tell Moshe? Anyone knows what God tells Moshe? What does God tell Moshe? God tells Moshe, write as I told you, Whoever wants to make a mistake is free to make a mistake. God says, I understand that these words could be misleading. I have a reason. There's a reason why he says, let us make man to show his humility, that he engaged the angels to make people feel important, the humility of God. But God understood that even though he had a reason, these words could lead a person to stray. And yet God says to Moses, a very famous Medrash, let write the word, and whoever wants to make a mistake can make a mistake. I'll give you another famous example. God tells Adam and Eve not to eat from the fruit of the garden, or from the fruit of a specific tree in the garden. And then what does God do immediately after he tells them not to eat from this particular tree? He sends them a snake. Doesn't just tempt them. He sends them a snake whose job is to get them to eat from this tree. God is the ultimate of good. God is teva hatov lehate. If God is the ultimate of good to do goodness, God wants to be kind to us. God wants to help us. God loves us. So how does it make any sense that God would create a system that allows people to make mistakes? Why would he put a snake into the Garden of Eden if he didn't want Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge? Yeah, we're paying till now. But if God loves us, then why would God put a snake there? So it's our fault that Chava sinned. It's mankind, humanity's fault that we sinned. But it's God's fault. God put the snake there. Now, of course, you can't blame God. We chose to eat it. Eve actually ate it. 
But if, if God didn't want Eve to eat from the fruit, then he shouldn't have put a snake there. Very simple. Imagine you tell a kid, don't eat from the cake. Here's a piece of cake, but don't eat it. And you leave it right then. You give him a fork and a, you know what I'm saying? If you don't want him to eat the cake, then don't leave it in front of him. So why will God say to Moses, write it, and whoever wants a mistake, let him make a mistake. You're right, you let us make man first of the angels, but why would God allow for words to be written in a way that would make us make a mistake? Shira, you're saying very good, Shira. Yeah. Exactly. Well, the reason is to, to show humility. But God is, the reason is not important for the point of the class. I'll explain it to you afterwards. So the point for the class is that God knew that these words could be used to justify heresy. These words could be used to justify a, a philosophy, or a theology rather, that goes against monotheism. It goes against the core basic belief of Judaism. And even though God knew that these words could be used in a way that would contradict monotheism, God allows these words to be in the Torah. And even though God knew that the snake would make man sin, God allowed the snake into the Garden of Eden. So why? Why will God allow that? So now we're going to come to the beauty of chassidus. You understand? I'm going to give you the Rebbe's beautiful explanation. There are some destinations that we can only get there through a difficult path. We talked before about the straight path and the path and the bushes and the thorns. Some destinations, the only way that God could get us there is through the thorns, through the sins, through the lapses, through the mistakes. And the only way that God could get that we not God, God could do anything, the only way that we can get there is through that learning experience of falling. Only when we go in a way that, that, that we would fall. And that falling, although it's against, listen to what I'm going to say now, although it's against the plan or the will of God, if you don't want to sin, the results of our sin are in line with His ultimate goal. Instead, I'll say it again. Although the action is against what God wants, the results of that action are exactly what God wants. And therefore, even though what you're doing right now in the Hebrew words, in Hasidic words, is hepech haratzon, it's against the ratzon, it's against the will of God, it is not against the kavana of God, it is not against the plan of God, the goal of God. I'm going to give you an example. A child is learning to walk. Okay, we all we have a child, the child's learning to walk. When a parent is teaching the child to walk, do you want your child to fall? No. But do you have to let your child fall in order for them to learn how to walk? Absolutely. So when the child falls, is that against the will of the parent? It's against the will of the parent. You don't want your child to, it's against the want of the parent. It hurts the parent to see your child fall and hurt themselves. But is it against your goal? Against your plan? No, it's part of your plan. Now the child gets a little older, and they're playing in the playground. Do you ho- hover over the child, not let them run on the seesaw or run on the slide, because they may get hurt? Or you understand that if they get hurt, it's part of growing up, and part of, there's a whole beautiful book called The, the Magic of a Skin Knee, that I think in America we need to, more parents should read it. But anyway, the, at least healthy parenting, you allow your child to run around on the playground, and your child hurts themselves, or they get into a fight, the two kids are fighting over, do you want your child to cry? 
course you don't want your child to cry. But when your child cries because someone didn't go give him what he wants, or he lost the game. And so you say, you know, that's part of life, etc. And you teach him how to suck it up and to shake the other team's hand, how to lose like a sport and lose like a man and all that. Is that, although he's crying and it makes you sad that he lost and you're sad that he's crying, is that against the plan of raising your child into a healthy adult? Absolutely not. So it's hepech saying, It's against my want. I don't want my child to fall and hurt themselves when they're learning how to walk or when they get old and they're learning how to bike. Right? So they're going to ride a bike and they're going to fall. And when you allow your child to learn how to ride a bike or learn how to ride a, play any sport, you know that your child is very likely going to get hurt playing that sport. We're in the Olympics now, right? You get hurt. The, you, you're going to get hurt. And yet, because I want my child to grow and to have that outlet and to have uh, that ability to learn from male failure and to learn how to run and to have balance and learn how to lose like a lo- lo- with, with grace, it's in the bigger picture of what I want my child to become, I need to let him fail. So I don't, the failing, say, I go a little older now, they're in business and they make a choice. You want your child, to, your child makes a bad choice. Healthy parenting, sometimes you, let your child, sometimes you let your child make the bad choice, knowing he'll lose some money, or knowing he's going to regret it later, because that's part of how they're going to grow up. And what's your ultimate purpose in raising your child? Not that they should always do what you want, but that they should grow up into the, what you want them to become, the goal, the kavana. Now, now, would you ever say, would a parent ever say, I'm going to let my child run in the street, so they'll learn a lesson that if you run in the street, you can get hit by a car. Absolutely not. Why not? Why would you let your child run in the playground when they might get hurt, but you wouldn't let them learn from it? And you wouldn't let them run in the street where if they get hit by a car, they'll also learn from it? Yeah, so explain that better. Because they could die. They could die. Which wouldn't then just be against your will or your want. That would be against your... Plan against your goal. You don't want your child to die at the age of seven. God forbid. God forbid. Right? That, that ends the whole goal. So a parent would never, ever, ever let their child run in the street. Even though if they were to run in the street and they would get hit by a car, they would learn their lesson really fast. Because they might learn the lesson too well. Right? That wouldn't be good. Because that wouldn't be against what I want for my child at the moment. That would be against the whole plan of my child. So God, let's go back to God now. Everything that happens in the world, everything that happens in our lives is orchestrated by God. When I have a temptation to do something wrong, when there's a snake slithering or sizzling or whispering in my ear, ooh, look at how tempting that apple is, or look at how pretty that woman is, or look at how much money you can make if you do business with a shady guy, or look at how exciting this addiction is, or whatever it is. That temptation, that snake... That's coming from God. And if I'm in the circumstance where God, see, where, where it seems like I want something that's wrong, it's because God is allowing me into a place where I can make a mistake because that mistake, although it would be against what God wants, it would make me grow and become more of what eventually God has in His master plan of what I will become. 
Ah, oh, very good question. Very good question. We'll get that done in a minute, okay? It's a good question. Well, let me make sure what I said is clear. If I, for those who are watching online, I hope what I said is clear. Everyone in the room, yes? Make sense? Make sense, Roseanne? Yes, Rob? Yeah, and by the way, sometimes people do die from playing sports too. I mean, you have to... And people also die driving in the car to the doctor's office, God forbid. I'm saying there could be, yes. You have the ability to keep on, to go to a point where it's... You could take it too far. But the point is that there's no path that God doesn't create. I cannot take a path that God didn't create for me. So when I have a choice between the uh, alcohol or the money or the whatever the sin is and the right choice. The fact that that temptation exists before me, the fact that the opportunity exists is because God gave me that opportunity. God gave me those friends that are taking drugs. So if I take the drugs because my friends are all doing drugs, God put me in that circumstance. But in a case of death, it doesn't follow God's plan. Why would God want that person? That's a very good question. That that. Well, yeah, but that's more about God's plan for that. that yeah, yeah. If a person dies, that is God's master plan, and then it's the plan for other people. And but now we're already going a little bit too heavy, a little too far. I guess you could argue that maybe the plan was for the person who knew the person that died who was struggling with addiction to maybe get out of the addiction. If you're looking for a way out of that. You start, you start now like trying to explain God's ways. Sometimes we can't explain. If a person dies from an overdose, I, I don't give any explanations. I don't even try. That's God. God, God. God owes us an explanation. I don't want to be the... say He owes us an explanation why young people die from overdoses. I'm not going to ever try and... Not, not good explanations, not bad. Some people like to explain how it's a punishment. <laughs> Some people like to play God and say, you know why he died? Because he did this and this and some people like to play God and try and defend God and feel like they need to justify God or else God is not a good God. And I don't take either of those paths, but that could be a whole hour lecture in and of itself that I'd be very passionate about, but we're going to leave it for that. What we are talking about in today's class is the Yerida, the descent for the sake of an ascent. God would not create a path of down if it doesn't lead to an up. If it doesn't lead to an up, then God wouldn't create the down. Because even though the down is against what God wants for the moment, in the long term, it's part of God's plan. Just like when you invest money, you don't want to lose money. No one wants to give away money. But you have to, if you want to make money, you got to give away money and take a risk, right? That's the only way to make it. And that's with everything in life. Okay, so let's look at some comments over here. God has a great sense of humor, that's true. Um, the contrast, ideas... Idea that we choose the muddy path. Oh, yes. We choose a muddy path, but God created the muddy path. The fact that we're able to choose a muddy path is only because God created something like that. And if God wouldn't create it, it wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have that option. I, right now, don't really have the option to go take drugs. I mean, theoretically, I could go find out where... The, but it, it's not, it doesn't really exist in my, in my, in my world. It's not part of the challenges of my life because that's not the road that God has for me and with my up and my down. It's not none of my. God gave me my own challenges, my own roads, I have my own downs, which will have my own ups. But the roads that exist for me, the choices that I have in my life, 
are because of where God wants me to go, my ultimate master plan. Okay? So, going back to the desert now. When the Jews were in the desert, they had low moments. They had sins. They had opportunities where they rebelled against God. They rebelled. They complained. They lost faith. They spoke bad about God. They the story of the spies, the story of Korach, and many bad stories. And those sins were absolutely against what God wanted at the time. Absolutely. But when the king is taking his son back, listen to this analogy of Rashi, when the king is now that the son is healed, now the Jewish people have grown from the experience and are now ready to enter the promised land with faith and conviction that God's going to take care of them, they're going to be victorious in the war and they're going to win. Now the king takes his son back on the journey. He tells him, here's where you were sick. Here's where you had a headache. You'll notice that the Rebbe explains the headache is a unique example. Where you were, he said where we were, where you were sick, not only you were sick, where you were ill, a headache means where you were confused, where you rebelled against God, where you complained against God, where your head wasn't working properly. The head was uh, tzimisht. You know, tzimisht means it's a... Uh, your head was confused. You were, and and even though the head was confused, and you had all this mishagas in your head, that mishagas was part of God's master plan to get the Jewish people to where they would be. In order for the Jewish people to be the Jewish people, they had to go through all those negative experiences first. Thank you very much. They, they had to go through all these negative experiences first. And now let me explain to you what this means. The, the, the last part of the class. What does it mean that in order for us to be who we need to be, we need to sin? How is, so we understand the example that a child falling on the floor is part of learning how to walk. Right? How is a person sinning part of them learning how to become a better person, a better Jew? How are the Jews sinning in the desert? How are the Jews rebelling against God and saying, it would have been better if we died in Egypt than to die here in the desert. How is that part of making the Jews into a better nation? Thank you very much, Vicky. Toda. Yes? You understand the question? How, how is it that me doing a sin is part of God's master plan? It's against God's will. Like a child falling down and scraping the knees against the mother's will. But it's part of the mother's plan that the child should grow up. How is a sin part of God's master plan? You got to go back to go forward, okay. Anyone online want to say something? Let, let's talk about God first, because that's easy, and we can talk about our own life. We'll end with our own lives. And how our negative experiences in our lives are part of the God's master plan. The, the negative experiences that we had, that we chose, are part of God's master plan. When a person sins, and then they really sins, and now they're healing from it, what do they need? To, what do they do? Teshuva. Teshuva. What's so powerful about teshuva? Repentance. Repentance. Teshuva means where you repent and you return from your sin. It says in the Talmud a very, very famous statement. That in the place where a Baal Teshuvah stands, a person that changes their life and returns to God, in the place where that penitent stands, 
Sadikim Gburam ain't the Nusham. The greatest righteous people can't stand over there, Marsha. Remember your question you asked me earlier. The greatest righteous people can't stand in the place where a person who sinned and changed their life stands. What does that mean? <laughs> You're saying that a tzaddik is not as great as a person that sinned and rebelled and cheated and lied and stole money and uh, was dishonest. That repentance is on a higher level than the tzaddik. Not stand physically in the same room. When it says they can't stand, it doesn't mean I can't stand on the same okay. se- can't sit on the same seat. It means metaphorically in the spiritual status. The status of a Baltishuva is an even greater place than the place spiritually. The mitzvah is uh, stronger as well. That's why. What's the explanation? The mitzvah is stronger. But can we talk about the time class? That's correct. So what's the explanation? Yeah, are you What's the explanation? When a person is really, really, when a person right now, let's say I wasn't, I wasn't speaking for, for, for an hour straight, and I had a tea, it would be a good tea. But now I'm actually really waiting for the tea to cool down. I really want the tea because I just spoke for an hour, and my throat's starting to hurt me a little bit. So I want the tea. When, when, when you're outside working for hours in the sun, right, and you're sweating and you're working, and, and now you get a cold glass of water, ah, it's refreshing. When a person was always religious and they get up to daven in the morning, they get up and they pray. But imagine a person who didn't have that. Now they come to and they chose on their own. They said, this is what I want to be. What happens now? There's like an energy, there's an oomph, there's a passion, there's a desire that only exists because of the emptiness that was there before. I'm not going to spend too long on this. I can also talk about for an hour about this idea too, about the vacuum how, how when, there's a va- when there's a void, creates a vacuum that sucks, let's say when you do a shot, right? A needle sucks the blood. Why does it suck it? Because it's an emptiness. So when you're empty, then you're, like, you're, like, you're, you're absorbing more than someone that's not empty. Right? Do you understand? So we're already like kind of over time, so we're going to go very briefly on this idea. But this is, I mean, and, and you're all familiar with this, and it's really a class of its own. The place where a Baal Teshuvah stands is greater than the Tzaddik, because the distance now creates a greater closeness. Just like when a kid goes away to school, right? They're living at home and you're fighting, your, your mother and a teenage kid are fighting every single day. And then she goes away to college and all of a sudden, in the absence, the heart goes fond, right? When you pull the string, all of a sudden, going back to what before, the scent for the sake of an ascent. You're pulling back and that makes you grow from it. Yes, Andrew, we grow from it, we learn from it, because it, it's not just that we grow from it. The actual sin itself creates the impetus for return. This is the key point. The, the, the reason why the, the Baal Shuv is on a higher place than the tzaddik, the person who repents is on a higher level, is not just because he's doing the mitzvah better than the tzaddik. The tzaddik may still be doing the mitzvah better than the, than the, than the, than the, the repentant person. But the repentant person has now transformed the sin into the gas, into the motivation, into the passion of the mitzvah that's not there in the person doing the mitzvah perfectly because he's always righteous. Right? That's what defi- that's the, what's the definition of tshuva? Teshuva means that I realize that the person that did the sin, that wasn't the real me. That's not... I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. That I regret doing what I did, and I, I, that wasn't me. So, 
when you serve Hashem like a tzaddik, why are you serving Hashem? Because God wants you to do so. Right? God told me to pray in the morning. God told me to eat kosher. God told me not to, not to sin. So I do it because God told me. God told me don't cheat on my wife. Not again. God said don't do drugs, whatever. So I, I do what God said. But if a person did the sin, if a person failed and succumbed to the temptation, and they did cheat, or they did lie, or they did steal, or they did whatever, and now they realize, I'm not a liar, I'm not a thief, this is not me, and they regret it, now why are they doing the right thing? Because God said so? Or they're doing it because they realize, this is who I want to be. You understand the difference? When I'm serving God because I'm very righteous, I'm doing what God wants. I'm doing the ruts and I'm doing the will of God. I'm doing what God wants. The child is playing and they're not getting hurt to do what the parent wants. But when the child falls down and the child learns from that fall, the child loses the game and the child is upset and feels like the other team cheated and he learns to still shake the other person's hand. Now, although it might have been a negative day for the child, it might have been sad, now the child learned how to become the child is doing because that's the right thing for him to do because of who he is, who you're making him into. When the person does teshuva and now they're serving God, it's not because God said so, because God said so before and they sinned and they still did the lie or whatever. Now they're serving God because they made a choice that this is who I want to be. And I regret what I did before. I'm changing what I was. But oh, you could only have that if you were something else before. If you had sinned before, if you have been distant before, now you look and say, how could I have been like that? And now you look back at those errors of your life and those phases of your life that were negative experiences. And you look back and you say from those, and you learn from those experiences, you say, I want to be something different than that person was then. I today don't want to be the same person that I was when I was in that relationship or when I was in that environment, when I was in that culture, and that uh, living in that place, and with that people, those people, etc. And I decide I'm changing. That's a change that could only come from the previous negative. And so now you look back at the previous times, and the king says, "This is where you were sick. This is where you were whatever." And you look back, you see a descent. Not just was a negative. It's a negative. It was a negative. Was a descent for the sake of a much greater ascent that could only have happened with that negative. And because God loves us, the only way to get there was through this negative. But that negative, if we look back, doesn't remain a negative. Now we're able to see how that negative becomes part of the journey of the positive. Understand? Yeah, obviously, that this is in hindsight. This is at the time of the sin, at the time of the negativity, you can't see this. Is, if a person's cheating and says, it's all part of God's master plan, that doesn't work. But if a person, let's say, yeah, the, the example of the cheating, and then they, they realize what I do wrong. I love my wife. I care about my wife. I didn't like, I got tempted and I got distracted. But this is not, I, you know, we, I care for this person. And they go to therapy and they work through marriage counseling. That marriage is going to be a much, much better marriage before the, before the cheating happened. Cheating happened because the marriage was missing life and was dead. And now, it has, it's, right? Or, or you move on from it and you say, it's not, it's not for me. And then you can have a new relationship that's only happened because of the negative experience. 
and then it becomes in the whole the negative itself in hindsight in hindsight becomes the beginning of something much much greater that's also by the way why Moshe had to break the tablets I was going to go more about the tablets Moshe broke the first tablets in order yeah it was a golden calf to make the second tablets and what does God tell Moshe on the second tablets well Moshe made them himself Moshe says to Moshe God says to Moshe Yasher Koach Asher Shibata. Thank you for breaking them. What do you thank you for breaking them? So second and the first tablets, which were the hand of God, holy, special, beautiful, they were broken. They didn't last. Why not? Because they were from God. They weren't from us. The second tablets that were made by Moshe, they were made by man. Guess what? We still have them till today. We don't have them here. They're buried underground somewhere in the Temple Mount. But they still exist till today. But when does God say to Moshe, thank you for breaking them? The first tablets? Only after the second tablets. Moshe didn't break the first tablets. That's a good job, Moshe. No. (laughs) Now it's bad. But after Moshe made the second tablets, then God says to Moshe, thank you for breaking the first ones. If a person was in a negative place in their life, but then they learn from it and they change their life, then the negative, exactly. Then the negative becomes a positive. If a person cheated, if a person sins, and they remain in the sin, and they define themselves by the sin, they say, well, this is who I am, I'm a sinner. <laughs> then, then, then there's no positive. There's no positive. When the person's out of work, there's no positive, it's negative. When the person's in the, far from God, they're far from God. But when they then use that for the distance to create a new closeness, then they can look back at the distance and use that to realize how that's making them even closer to God than if they were always close. Because now it's not about what God wants me to do, now it's about what, I'm be- what I've decided to be. What is, the- which is not- what is God's plan? What's God's master plan? Not that we should do what He tells us. Exactly. God's master plan is not that we should do whatever He tells us like robots. For that He is angels. God's master plan is that we should choose that I want to be a person that does what God wants. I want to be a person that keeps Shabbos and keeps kosher and leads a holy, spiritual, godly, uplifted life. When I choose that, when I choose that, that's far greater than any time that I didn't just because God told me without making the choice that this is who I want to be. But you can only make that choice when you had a moment of, when, when you had a moment of distance. There's a descent, now I can make the choice. Understand? Yeah, that's right. So you have to learn from the negative. Any uh, thoughts, questions, ideas, comments? Are you watching online? Any comments? Yes. Yeah, but if they can learn to choose not to, to control them, not to eat it, now you've changed them into a better person. I've given my kids, not, not cake, but marshmallows. 
and told them, I wanted to not eat it. And guess what? No, no, they didn't. Do you know why? Not going to punish them if they did, but I was going to reward them if they didn't give them a second marshmallow. There's a very, very famous concept called the marshmallow test. It's a brilliant idea. I don't remember which, which um, not a scientist, whatever, like, uh, whatever. It was, someone figured this out. He did a whole, a whole study. There's a word for it, not a scientist, like a sociologist, whatever. He did a study, like a thousand, I don't know the numbers, whatever. And basically he tested kids at the age of five years old, I think it was. And he put them in the room with a marshmallow. Or was, I think it was his kid, it was a cookie, or I think it was a marshmallow. He said, you can eat this marshmallow. It's yours to eat. But if you can sit in the room and not eat the marshmallow for 10 minutes, I will then give you two marshmallows to eat. Discipline. Discipline. And they had no other distractions, no other stimuli. They had to sit in the room and look at this marshmallow, nothing else. And if they were able to control themselves not to eat it, they got two. Wow. They got two. And then he tracked these kids, so I don't remember the numbers, of the kids that couldn't resist, didn't have the self-control to not eat the marshmallow, ate the one because it was there in front of them and they wanted it. And those that were able to wait and to get two. And he tracked them through life. And again, I don't want to make up the numbers. I don't remember the statistics. But basically, more or less, all the kids that were able to control themselves and to have the inner discipline not to eat the marshmallow right away, but to wait for the second one, were the ones that were successful. Like 90% of them were successful, etc. And those that couldn't were in low-paying jobs and like, you know, uh, in debt and struggling, etc., etc. It's not a hundred... You know, I don't do, so, and, there's a, and from this, this is a very, very, very famous study. Google it. Just type the word marshmallow and the word test will come up. And based on this marshmallow test, this is from like 100 years ago, this test. Or I don't know. From that, many, many, many other scientific studies have been done with many similar different things. You know, and the same idea over and over has been proven that kids are from a very young age can show discipline, are, 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 are destined to succeed in life. So I have done this test with all my kids. At what age? Young. Young. My son Shaya has done it. Uh, Shaya. I did it. I did it. I did it recently with my kids again. I did it sometime in the last year. When my, I think when Shaya's kids, my brother, there was someone else's kids in the home. Was it my? I think my brother Shaya. Yeah. So I think I'm almost sure it was recently, like one Shabbos afternoon, like in the last year. And my brother Shaya was in my house with his kids. So for sure, my daughter Menucha and his son uh, David, and I'm pretty sure that the Shaya and... Uh, uh, sorry, Mendel and the Shaya and David also. Meaning, I'm almost sure that my, my son Shaya, who was four, did it. He didn't touch it. Didn't touch it. All my kids... Uh, now, they grow up in their disciplined home, and they grow up with kosher and all that. So, But they're, they're, they have the discipline. They're going to be successful in life. How long did they have to wait so I think for the younger kids it was five minutes, and then for the older kids, so then Mushkin and Simon, like they were like, okay, I done them in the past. They also wanted to do the test. Now big, big kunz, you know, big kunz means like big trick. They already know how it works. They already, they already like I know they're gonna succeed, but they just want two marshmallows. You know what I'm saying? They're like we want it too. So I made it longer for them. I made it like I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was like five minutes for the youngest kids, like three minutes, and then five minutes for the youngest kids, and like ten minutes for the old middle kids, and like fifteen minutes for the oldest kids, and they all. Uh, they all passed the test and they all got double Shabbos party. I was happy to get them. So, in answer to your question about that, that was all. Why am I saying that? 
Yeah, if you put a piece of cake in front of a kid and you say, don't eat the cake, this is part of the growing process of the child. I take my kids to a restaurant, a store, whatever. They know if it's not kosher, you can't eat it. And they see it or whatever. And it's part of the learning process that makes them into the people that they become. And today we have a society that has told kids, if they want something, they have to get it. If you want it, it must be right. I feel it in my heart. So that means it must be true, it must be good, it must be holy, because you, it's, that's what I feel in my heart. But that's Baba Mises. You know what Baba Mises means? It's grandmother's tales. It's grandmother's tales to say that if you feel it, it must be true, it must be good. No, it's absolutely not. So, there could be a point where, yes, you put, you put the obstacle in front of the kid in order for the kid to learn from it. And someone will give a kid an opportunity and you'll say, um, well, you, you, you're not going to put matches in front of them. I wouldn't do the test with matches because they might burn themselves. <laughs> that would be not against my will. That would be against my plan. I wouldn't give them a knife and say, you know, be careful with a knife. However, I would give them a marshmallow and say, be careful, you know, so there could be a time when that's part of the choice that God, there's two paths and they could choose one path, they could choose the other path. Either path is part of God's plan, but the path of descent is a path that will lead to a greater place and that's why God creates that path. But the golden calf wasn't a marshmallow, it was a loaded gun. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. It was obviously a gun that wasn't too loaded that the Jews couldn't heal from it. Even though it looked like a loaded gun, the, the question that Robert asked, for those that are here, is that the golden calf was not just a marshmallow, it was one of the worst sins the Jewish people could have ever committed. Right. True. It's like giving your child a loaded gun, you know, say, with no supervision, Moses on the mountain. And God allowed the golden calf to come out of the fires. God, God enabled the golden calf. Not only that, God said, don't worship just like we I gave an example of Adam leaving this in the garden and then God puts the snake in the garden same thing happened God said in the Ten Commandments don't make molten images and then God takes Moses up onto the hill he, he allows the Sultan to give them an image of Moses being dead he allows witchcraft to be successful if this golden calf will walk out of the fire as if it's alive how could you blame the Jews which means which means that although the golden calf was a terrible, terrible, terrible sin, it was the path that God had created for the Jewish people. If God had not created that path, the golden calf would never have happened. We learned from Then why did Moshe have to defend? What's that? So, so what did we learn from the golden calf? How did we grow from the golden calf? Hmm? Uh, let's finish this thought. Okay. So the golden calf. The golden calf is absolutely part of God's master plan. How do I know that? Because God allowed that to happen. And if God created a path, God, any path we would have chosen was created by God and only was possible because God wanted to be the first. So how, and when we worship the golden calf, it was absolutely against God's will. Right? God was very angry at us. So how was that part of God's plan? How was the golden calf part of God's master plan if God was so angry at us for doing it? How? We talked... Say more. I'll give you a hint. We talked about the very concept that was given to the Jews as a result of the golden calf. We talked about it tonight. 
Exactly. When was the first time the Jews were finally able to do Teshuvah? After the golden calf. As we explained, Teshuvah is even greater than the Tzaddik. If the Jews would not have worshipped the golden calf, what relationship would the Jews have had with God? God says and you do. God commands and you listen. That would have been the whole relationship that we would have with God. God commands, you listen. So we, we wouldn't, it wouldn't have been our choice. It would have been God telling us what to do. Right. right. And so that would have just been us listening to whatever God tells us. But when we sin with the golden calf, which was against the will of God and made God very angry and God wanted to kill us and there was a plague and many Jews did die and, and we were punished for all that. But what happened is the ultimate long-term result of that? The concept of teshuva, the concept of return, was introduced to the Jewish people. And when we discussed it without long ago, when you have a knot, when the rope, oh no, it wasn't you, it was Brian. When you cut a rope and then you tie it again, then it's even stronger than it was when it was before it was before it was cut, etc., etc., etc. Again, it could be a whole class also of its own about the concept that when you do teshuva, you're in a closer relationship with God. Then we're just an obedient servant doing whatever God tells you to do. I also remember this concept that he said once that, and you know God is forgiving you when you're tested and you don't do it again. Is that correct? Or is that in my mind? You know God is, you know, yeah, you know you've done teshuva. Yes, absolutely. The Rambam writes, how does he you know a person did real teshuva? The Rambam writes that uh, when a person is in the same opportunity of sin that he was last time. Last time he was the, the example the Rambam gives he was secluded with a woman, etc. And he is in the same you know, situation where he has the same opportunity as last time. And this time he doesn't do the sin. He overcomes the temptation. That's the proof that he's done in real Teshuvah. So a person had the opportunity to steal again and he didn't. That's repentance. The opportunity to, 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 to take advantage of someone or to you know that's yeah, because that's just the proof. Meaning, you've the point is, the point is that you've changed your personality. It's not just like I'm not, I'm not going to sin because I'm listening to God. I've changed my personality. I've changed who I am. I'm not the same person that I was before. The person I was before couldn't resist the temptation. He had the opportunity. He couldn't resist the opportunity. Now, after my repentance, I'm a different person that even though the opportunity is the same, the circumstances are the same, I am a different, so the outcome is different. What happens if you don't have the opportunity? Then you don't know that. You, then, then you have to keep on working on Then you have to keep on changing yourself and changing yourself and, and looking back to have more remorse and more internal recalibration of your compass, of your moral compass. Because you never know. never know. And by the way, even if a person overcame the temptation, that means that he's done, he doesn't have to repent for the sin anymore. Of course you do, because you can never trust yourself till the day you die, it says. Don't trust yourself till the day you die. And even though now you are in a good moral place, in a good spiritual place, where you're able to overcome the temptation, that's not a proof that in three years from now, you'll still be in the same place of strength. King David very famously says, that the Khatosi Negdi summit. David says, My sin 
is always before me. David did a terrible sin. He saw a beautiful woman called Bathsheba, and he saw her bathing on the, on the roof. But before it was his wife, it was Uriah's wife. And uh, he wanted her, and he had her husband killed, and he took her for his own wife. And it was a terrible sin. And as a result of that, he spent the rest of his life repenting for the sin. And he never, ever finished repenting. As he says, my sin is constantly before me. Even though it came a point when he was old in his life, where his body was cold, and they put these beautiful young virgins in bed with him to warm him up, and he didn't have intercourse with them. That's how much his self-control was. Because he repented, with it. he changed his personality to the point that he could be laying in bed with a young woman, and he could re- restrain himself from 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 doing a sin. Tom gets more explicit, but I'm going to stay clean. I'm going to stay. The truth is, you know, Marge, honor of Marsha being here. We need some rated R. <laughs> in honor of the potato chips and the honor of Marsha's first in-person. Is this your first class since COVID? Yeah. Is it really? Okay, so in honor of Marsha, I'm going to do some rated R. <laughs> We're way over time in the class. We'll end off with like this rated R. So here's what the Talmud says, okay? The Talmud says about King David who sinned with this Bathsheba and then his whole life doing repentance. And then it says he was old in his, his old age and he was, it says that, uh, that David was old, they bought him young virgins to be in bed with him and to warm up his skin and he didn't uh, have intercourse with him. So someone said to him, the reason why you're, you're, you're not, you're too old, don't pretend like you're religious. Yeah, 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 you're religious, you're righteous. You're an old man. That's why. So David, to prove that it wasn't because he was too old, took Bathsheba, his wife, and he had sex with her 18 times, it says in the Talmud. 18? 18 times. That's a lot of work. <laughs> 18 times. 18 times. No, no, I don't know 18 girls in the bed with him. But... Uh, and uh, 18 times to show that he still had the strength within him if he wanted to, you know, to show his man uh, and his man. But, but he didn't because he had truly transformed himself. He'd done true teshuva that even though there were young girls in bed with him, that uh, he didn't do anything he wasn't allowed to do. And by the way, he was a king, so he was allowed to. King had a lot of wives, but the rabbis made a rule to be 18 wives was a max for a king in those days. He had the maximum number of wives. They weren't married to him, and so he didn't have intimacy with them. And his son gave his son, and, and, and his son, and because of that, his son destroyed his kingdom. His son was a sin in that respect. Wait, 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 what did he say? Shlomo HaMelech had hundreds of wives. Oh, hundreds of wives. And as a result of that, it was a sin. He thought Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, was so wise. He thought that he was so righteous, he would never right. sin. And he wouldn't be distracted by all the women in his home. But it did cause him to be led astray, cause him to sin, cause his heart to be taken from God. As a result of that, although he wasn't punished in his lifetime, but as a punishment for his indulgence, the kingdom was destroyed. After he, after he died, his, his dynasty fell apart. Well, his dynasty remained, but immediately after he died is when you have the revolt between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Yehuda. That's already another history class, not for tonight. And the separation of the ten tribes of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah... Uh, in the south okay next week same time same place right God willing